everybody, my name is Remy. Welcome to the For the Love podcast with your host, Jen Hatmaker, my mom. She writes books and speaks to crowds, but she mostly loves talking to amazing people on this podcast every week. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey, everybody, it is Jen Hatmaker. Your host for the For the Love podcast. Love that you're here today. We're in the middle of an amazing series, um, and it is For the Love of Books, one of our very high shared values here in the podcast community. So we're talking to all kinds of great thinkers and storytellers, and we're getting into the minds and hearts of the folks who tell us their stories and grab our imaginations or move us in different ways or talk about the craft of writing. Of course, I love it. I'm, I've nerded out in every possible episode. So I'm really, really excited to bring you my next guest. She is insightful and she is warm. She is funny. She is wise. She has a new book coming out that you're gonna, going to love. We're going to talk about it at length. So it's Kathy Kong. And she is just a friend that I respect and I love and I learn from. She's a writer. She's a speaker. She's a yogi, drinker of coffee. She's wife to Peter. And they just celebrated their 25th wedding anniversary. She's got three kids, Bethany, Corbin, Elias. Um, Kathy was born in Korea. And she immigrated to the U.S. when she was eight months old. Um, So she actually began her writing career as a journalist and then moved into parachurch ministry where she is literally spent more than 20 years working with college students and training organizational and church leaders. So she really knows what she's talking about, you guys. She's just like a wealth of knowledge and experience. So Kathy is the author of two books. Her first was called More Than Serving Tea. She wrote it like 12 years ago with four other co-authors where they talked kind of about the intersection of faith and culture and gender and just tells this really um, important story of being Asian American Christian women But her latest book is all hers, and it's called Raise Your Voice, Why We Stay Silent and How to Speak Up. Um, I'm actually going to tell you in this podcast what I did when I first read it, um, because I had a real strong reaction um, to this message. And uh, this is is the book we need right now, in my opinion, because words are very powerful, and they have the force to spark ideas, to build, to change. Like, they topple the status quo. There's never been a time when words matter more. So, um, you know, I think, what is your voice? Like, this is a big question. For some of us, we're not even sure what our voice sounds like. Um, right. Our identities are shifting or the way we view the world is shifting and we might not know what we think about everything. Um, sometimes it's just enough to be present in the moment, much less figure out how we feel about being there and then say it out loud. So this conversation with Kathy is a great reminder. What we have to say is worthy and it matters and it's powerful. And we're going to talk all about why that is and how we can use our voices to do great good in the world. If you don't already know Kathy, if you don't already follow her, you're going to be so glad um, to meet her in this hour. We have this amazing conversation lined up for you. And we talk about it all, you guys. Um, Parenting, raising our kids to have a voice, using our voice in this culture, um, the inevitable tension that comes with it. So if this is something that you would like to hear more on or learn about, this is your podcast. So you guys, without any further ado, do help me welcome to the show Kathy Kong. Welcome to the show, my friend. Thank you so much, Jen. I'm so happy to have you on. We just a minute ago got to sit at a lovely restaurant in Chicago, the two of us, and yes. have a glass of rose and solve world's problems. We did, we did while so nice. sweating buckets because it was, you know, all right, but not as hot, hot as it is where you are. <laughs> Everything's terrible here. 
like everything's terrible. We hate everything. This is when we're like, we're, we're not, why do we live here? Why do we live in Texas? Um, <laughs> it's going to take us fully until November to remember, but it's coming. Um, I'm just thrilled to have you on. I'm, I'm so happy to introduce you to so many of my listeners and my readers um, and your work and who you are and what you say and what you do. I'm just, I'm like in advance excited for the next hour because people are going to be like, I like her. Um, so you're in our For the Love of Books series for good reason, um, because you wrote one. I did. Yay. Oh, <laughs> I feel like barfing. I really do. And I don't, I don't do that very often. I can't remember the last time that happened, but yeah. it's humbling and it's exciting and it's very vulnerable. Um, it's just so relatable because the last book that you co-authored with your friends and colleagues was, yes. what did you say? It was 12 years it ago? It was 12 years ago before social media monster oh erupted and the idea of a platform was completely different. Totally. And so it, it, it was different because there were five of us, so we could kind of commiserate and talk about how weird it was and exciting it was, but yeah. there was no like hanging over Facebook the totally. way it is now. So, you know, social media existed, but not in the way it does now. So uh, it feels very different. And it, I'm still trying to figure out whether or not it, it's fun. Most of it's fun. <laughs> I think it's fun, right? But there are parts of it where I'm like, oh my oh, God. That's ah. so amazing. Trying to see if I like this. It's yeah. unclear at this it's juncture. Unclear. Like, I just want to write. <laughs> it's your day in the sun, sis. And also, you know how I feel about your book. I love it. Yes. I love it. I love it. In fact, I do want my listeners to know, and I'm going to kind of I'm going to sort of butcher the way that I said it, but you know, you sent it to me a few months ago mm -hmm. and I, I was not lying or exaggerating when I got your manuscript, I had not, not a week earlier sent a somewhat a medium developed proposal to my publishing team. Um, essentially saying we've got to find our voices and use it. And I got your book, I read it, and the very first email I sent was to my team. And I'm like, pull, pull it, like pull that proposal, put it in the trash. I'm not writing that book because Kathy has already written it and it is beautiful and it is better than I was going to write. And this is, the message is out there. So instead of writing it, I'm just going to talk about Kathy's book. It's <laughs> so good. It's Thank so good. You. I'm so Thank proud of you. you. Will you tell everybody a little bit about the title? Yes. Um, because it's very declarative. It's very <laughs> action oriented. It's it's actually really powerful. It's it, it gives it me is. a feeling in my gut the second I lay eyes on it. So what it can you talk about that and also sort of what inspired you to write this book at this time? Yes. So the the working title was actually something around speak up and speak out. Mm -hmm. And that's how we got the subtitle, why we stay silent and how to speak up. And um, my editor, I think, was actually like we were brainstorming and this was this was the title and the subtitle that he was saying, no, let's let's do this. And I said, OK, OK, Mm -hmm. Raise your voice. Yes. Declarative. Very strong. Yeah. And yes. I must confess that I was really uncomfortable with Were it. Were you? 
I was because how ironic I'm writing a book about raising your voice and I'm uncomfortable about how strong the <laughs> title is, right? Totally. Like, oh, are, are people going to think that I'm some sort of expert? I'm not an mm-hmm. expert. I talk about failing and, and being ready to fail. And yeah. so I had to wrestle with the title itself and, um, and then just a, an aside on the cover I had actually asked the designer if they could make my name smaller. Did you really? I did. Oh my <laughs> gosh. The irony. But the the idea came about really over 10 years of wrestling with the very thing that I was learning how to do mm-hmm. was to speak up and to raise my voice in different circumstances, whether mm-hmm. it was in my family and in my neighborhood and my friendship circles at church, at work, and realizing that that was something everyone was having trouble with and trying to navigate. Mm-hmm. And it did take about 10 years for me to kind of put it together and feel like I could I had the confidence to put it out there. Yep. I get this. Because you do want to, you want to back it with a little bit of weight of, if not authority, at least experience that you have, you've lived your message to some degree, which you absolutely have. And so I'd like to go backwards with you a little bit. And, and so I ask you this, like, in general, would you say that like raising your voice has come naturally to you? Like when you were a kid, did you gravitate toward um, sharing your thoughts and ideas kind of out in the open or were you like more an internal processor Um, or did sort of external forces push you to keep those inside or were they outside? Like how, how have you been? How were you as a kid? It was all messed up. It really was all messed up. I was telling someone the other day that in each kind of sphere of my life, even as a child, there were different rules to play. And I learned at school, the rule was to speak up, but only really when you had the answer and you knew the answer was correct, right? So that's when you raise your hand and you, you don't speak up. So, um, childhood bullying. I didn't experience that until we moved out of the city and moved into the suburbs. And that's Mm. when I experienced bullying. And I had to figure out when was it appropriate to speak up and raise my voice and yell back at the person and what the consequences were going to be. And then there was a whole nother set of rules in my Korean immigrant church Oh yeah. and who was supposed to speak up and who was allowed to speak up mm-hmm. and same thing and very different cultural rules in that space. Which were what? What were the cultural rules inside the cultural your community? rules in the community um, as a girl, you could speak up amongst girls, but the older you got, the less you were really supposed to speak up. Mm -hmm. But then that was also challenged by the fact that we were second gen, Americanized, Korean, rebellious children Mm -hmm. who were also good kids at church. And, um, And then it also depended on what rank your parents had in leadership. So like if you were the poor pastor's kid, you're doomed. Mm -hmm. And, and then it kind of filtered down from there, you know, deacon, elder, that kind of thing, Mm -hmm. Sunday school teacher. Um, And then at home, it was just a mix of rules where we were encouraged to speak up and 
process out loud school and what was going on academically. But my parents grew up in Korea. And so processing out loud what was going on at school was such, uh, it was so frustrating because they didn't understand. They didn't they didn't understand the kind of racial bullying and teasing that was going on. They didn't understand right. how it felt like to be always the kid who wondered, am I not getting picked because mm. I'm I'm the Asian kid? Mm. And we, in our suburban school district, when we moved out there, we were the first family of color to were move you really? out. Were you Yeah. It was wow. Weird. Surprised to hear that, actually. So weird. So um, our garden was awesome because the whole subdivision was built on farmland. So okay. <laughs> um, the garden grew really well. Okay. Um, but other than that, it was just really bizarre. So I grew up and I'm a, I am an external processor. Okay. So I like to talk and figure out my thoughts, but I can also do it via writing. It doesn't have to be talking. So Mm -hmm. it just has to be outside of myself. Got it. Um, But the speaking up about stuff that ticked me off and angered me, that was a work in progress Mm -hmm. and trying to figure out what were the costs and was I willing to pay them? Yeah. And, and could I do it in subversive ways, like yelling back at the bullies in Korean? Uh, uh, clever, <laughs> clever girl. All sorts of things uh-huh. in Korean because nobody knew yeah. what I was saying. But then I could yell and look angry and say bad words. Mm. And nobody knew the difference. They mm. just knew I was mad, but they didn't know what I was saying. So... It definitely was a work in progress. So pressing into that a little bit, in in Raise Your Voice, you wrote, you said, in many ways, giving birth to a child was easier than giving birth to my voice. And I appreciate the like gravity in which you make that statement because um, I, I'm guessing that a lot of my listeners are nodding their heads like... Mm-hmm this whole idea of finding your voice is it can be intimidating. It can be scary. And I really appreciate that you just mentioned there's a cost to it, which is fair. I mean, that that's true. And so I wonder if you can unpack that a little bit for us when you said, you know, giving birth to a child was literally easier than this. And so can can you talk about that for a minute? Well, and it, and I, I don't write that lightly because I almost died with, um, giving birth to my firstborn. Um, I, almost bled out and was rushed into surgery. And in all of that, I being here in the United States um, at a great hospital with an attentive nurse, amazing surgeons, right? All of that help right there. There were classes to take about childbirth and um, the internet was available. Totally. And all sorts of books that scared you to death and didn't actually tell you what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I felt at least that there was support and commiseration around childbirth, but around raising your voice and learning about all of that feels very vulnerable and alone. It's a lot yes, of solitary work. And, um, and I, 
And I felt like putting the words down in a book would also provide some sort of, um, I don't know, a doula. Yeah. I'm there yes. to kind of walk and, and to encourage other readers that we can help one another in this process, that we're going to make mistakes. And you and I both know that because of the power of social media, we, we eat our own. That's right. And it's vicious out there. And can we be kind and gracious and gentle to one another because it is vicious out there? Mm -hmm. Um, And it was easier to give birth because then you're encouraged to do it again. Oh my gosh, right? Like, oh, you, oh, you don't want that baby to be alone and an only child and all of those things. happy about the baby. Look, we like your baby. Give the world another. I think being the mother of three and raising them almost all into adulthood, I can say, yeah, it, it actually was easier to give Mm. birth Mm. and that this process of finding my voice and putting it out there continues to be vulnerable, but important soul work. So I think that's why we're nodding our heads and particularly women who have given birth are nodding their heads. And hopefully men are too, that they're realizing, oh, this is, this is not a one-time thing. This is yeah. not a two, three, four time thing. This is your lifetime and your understanding of who you are changes over time. It just, you know, I, I also am sitting here at my desk nodding my head. And of, of course, you know how deeply I identify with everything yeah. you're saying, both the importance of using our voices in this moment, in our culture, in this world at this exact time, and also the costs associated with it. There's not a whole lot of parties that are thrown. No. Um, and, and you've got to kind of get back in the ring and it's, it's challenging. And I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit, I was just telling you before we, um, started recording that, you know, your book is just incredibly timely. I mean, it's always, it has always been important that people use their voices for good, for justice, um, for making wrong things right, for calling out um, just immoral and ungodly behavior and um, attitudes and racism and bigotry and all of it. That's always been important. Um, It feels mission critical right now, right this minute. It just feels quite hot. And so I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about the importance of using our voice. And I don't want anybody listening to think, well, you know, it's Jen and Kathy. They, they write books (laughs) and they've got a bigger, they speak at conferences and, you know, they've got a voice to use where people are listening. I think that is, that's a false start um, idea right there, which is that only certain voices matter. Um, only certain ones turn the tide. In fact, I was sitting around a dinner table last night with some very, very dear friends. And one of my friends is enacting really meaningful challenges to the racism in her community. Um, and she's one of the only ones, like she stands alone almost every time she does it. And I was telling her last night around the dinner table, I said, it is, 
I said, it is not the gin hat makers of the world. I think that are turning the tides. It's, it's the Melissa's around the table in their individual communities, refusing to sit silently by. Um, and you are the ones that's where it's at. It's at this like groundswell level. I think where we live in our families, with our neighbors, in our churches, with our communities, it's, it's that voice that lives there that works alongside that, the, this, this community and is a neighbor to this community. That voice is the one that we need. That is the voice oh, I think to challenge, um, inequality and the status yeah. quo. Yeah. And it happens on a daily basis. It just happened yesterday with my uh, middle child, my 19 year old son, and he is, you know, navigating friendship and all that kind of stuff. And, um, and of all things, it was around uh, the breakup of two of his friends, and oh. both of them are dear friends. And so it was like, you know, Mom, do you think I can go out um, with? We'll call her. Uh, we'll call her Jane. Um, okay. Can I go out with Jane, even though she just broke up with? Uh, we'll call him Bill. Um, okay. <laughs> and because you know that phrase, rose before fill in the blank. Uh, And I looked at him and I said, no. And he looked at me, you know, I'm just kidding, mom. No, I don't care. That's not kidding. It's not appropriate. It's never appropriate. And you know, that could have happened at any time, but particularly now when we have, can I say, you know, we've got someone in an important building um, we can country. say all that. Yeah. This okay, podcast tells the that. truth. Right. So we've got, we've got what's his name in the White House um, and the things that have come out of his mouth and the things that he tweets, right? The, it's not okay. And so to have my 19-year-old son who is trying to navigate real and important day-to-day friendships and how to navigate that, I don't want to hurt Jane, and I don't want to hurt Bill, but their friendships are both important to me. And in the middle of that uses this disgusting phrase. Mm. And I could have let it go because my heart is so tender that he is trying to figure out how to do this and to be mature about it. And I said, you know what, honey, I love you. And let's figure this out. But you have got to erase that phrase. That's so good. Right. And so that doesn't happen on a platform. That doesn't happen at a conference. Right. We don't talk about these things necessarily when we're speaking at conferences, but it happens in our homes. And it's important because he's in relationship with his friends. And I know they use that language. I know they do. And so he's going to need that reminder. And he gets that reminder in front of his friends as well. That's good. Because they know they can't talk that way here. And it slips. And every time it slips, I give them a dirty look and I say, no, not appropriate. It's not okay. Because in this world right now, it seems like it's supposed to be okay. It's so true. And I, I like that you just use that very ordinary example from literally yesterday, because I am with you. These are the moments. And so it's, I, I wonder how many people are listening and just thinking, mm, 
you know, it's so easy at this moment to diminish it. Well, it's just kidding. It's just a silly thing to say. He didn't mean it. It's not that we're kind of conditioned to look the other way on language like that, on uh, messaging like that, on sort of caricatures like that, because I think we're, we're deeply of, we have a deep aversion to conflict and being that person. I'm going to be that girl, you know, who's always calling the thing out. Here I am again. And yet in my estimation, I just cannot think of almost any more important work right now. Um, it's, this is the kind of like casual offensiveness, this sort of casual, um, racism or sexism or misogyny or, um, bigotry or homophobia that we have just got to erase from casual conversation. Like, honestly, how many people around us are saying these things with malice, Overtly, not very right. often. That's right. ca- that's more the rare example, at least in my world, it is. It's these very casual, um, normalizing, yes, um, conversations where language like that just gets a free pass, right. and and that is a stepping stone to oh, deep seated like bias, right. and and so I just I want everybody listening to reevaluate how easily and often we we choose silence over using our voices to call that stuff out. Like what kind of world are we building with our own voices, with the voices we're training our children to have? Um, So speaking of like motherhood, again, I'm thinking about my listener who is hearing us talk and thinking about their actual life and where they're at and and where they're at along the spectrum of this work. So I wonder if when you became a mom, how old your oldest? Is your oldest 20? She's 22. 22. So you've got 22, 20, 19, 19, yeah, 19 and seven, 16. Oh my goodness. Okay. Right. Gosh, you're way, you know, you and I are very much in a similar space. Um, when you became a mom, so going mm-hmm. backwards a little bit in your sort of progress and journey, did you find your voice um, changing or or even like slowing momentum during that time? Like how did your voice evolve from there, from like mama in the weeds, right? Like there's kids everywhere. And, and how have you learned to manifest it kind of both inside and outside your family? Does that question make sense? Yeah, no, it makes sense. It makes sense. So I had some help when my firstborn came around, she, that would have been 95. So I was, I was a newspaper reporter and, um, and I was trying to figure out how to keep my job, (laughs) manage the whole, like working outside of the home, showing up on time, pumping all of that and still fight for a story and, you know, fight for a byline and all those types of things. Um, and not lose it emotionally at any given moment because of the hormones. And yet also struggling to figure out if, if all of that mattered, Hmm. right? If my career as a journalist mattered in light of having this baby Hmm. at home and a daycare and all of those things. And, um, and I, so it was this kind of speeding up in the career and also a slowing down because of trying to reconfigure the impact of what I was doing. It felt different. There was a different weight to it knowing that there was this other life that we were responsible for. 
And it was, it was frightening. And I felt a little more, um, secure in one way because I felt the importance of what I was doing, but then also insecure because I was pumping sure, <laughs> and like, right. All of the realities of that juggling in the, in the workplace that way. And then coming home and feeling like, am I doing right by this mm-hmm. baby? Am I doing right by this child? And, and then as she got older and we added children, it was also very confusing because then you're introduced to this whole other realm, which is other mothers yeah. <laughs> at school. And are you going to be a part of this committee and get involved in your community that way? And um, I felt that being a mom and being a, uh, a part of the community felt different once I learned more about what people were engaged in. And that that isn't only for mothers. You don't right. have to learn it only by becoming a mother. That was my that was my kind of entry into that world of civic duty and yeah. are you gonna be on the PTA and all that kind of stuff and wrestling with whether or not I had the capacity, whether or not I had the time in my schedule and not just the time in my schedule, but also the space to build relationships. Right. Because again, as an Asian American woman trying to find spaces in which I wasn't the only in the room felt exhausting. And so there was that in the workplace and there was that, you know, on the school playground and there was that in the community and feeling like, ah, (laughs) how, I don't, I don't want to speak up everywhere I go. I just, can I just be, can I just not be angry at something? Yeah, <laughs> um, yes. And so it, it continues to fluctuate. I only have one child in school now. I mean, I have a child in college, but I'm not there. Yeah. So right. totally different experience. And, um, and, and I have found that with different seasons of parenting, Um, I have found that the urgency hits me in different ways. Mm. And then my capacity is impacted in different ways. And then, quite frankly, the ability to, quote, build a platform or even have the space to write anything is impacted um, by those different seasons. So, uh, you know, I'm... I'll be 48 this year. And you and I have talked about this too, that for me, writing my first solo book at 48 is very late. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's very late. (laughs) It's very late. And, Mm -hmm. um, and so even in this space, it feels strange. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, it's weird because it's my first book, but like you said, I've been doing this for so long. Well, in, in my estimation, that script should positively flip. Like, y- you've earned your space. Like, I want to know what you have to say because you've lived your life and you've done the work and you've raised the kids and you've discovered your voice. Like, when I think about some of the things I wrote when I was 29 years old, I want to slash <laughs> my own tires. Like, I, I want to put myself in timeout. I just, I, I just can't believe it. And so yeah. I am 
I feel differently than you in that I think this is the exact wonderful, perfect time mm-hmm. for your book mm-hmm. to hit the stands because yeah. you have, you, you've learned so much, you, you yeah. know, so much, your body of knowledge and experience is so deep. And, um, and I, I constantly learn from you. Guys, I want to talk to you for just a minute about writing. I know so many of you have a story that's burning inside of you, and you know it would make a fabulous book, but you have no idea how to get the thing published. So if you're ready to take the next step to tell your story, I have an amazing person I want you to meet. Rochelle Gardner is a literary agent who has spent 25 years helping authors get published. And she reps, frankly, some of the best writers in the industry, including my brilliant friends, Sarah Bessie and Jamie Wright. Guys, Rochelle offered me my first book contract in 2004, I kid you not. So Rochelle is leading an online course called Author School, and it has one goal for you, getting from pen to published. Author School is an eight-week course that covers literally everything you need to know about publishing, getting an agent, writing book proposals, editing, building author platforms, and so much more. It's chock full of information that you need to know so you can make your publishing dreams a reality. So just for you, the listeners of the For the Love podcast, there is prioritized, reserved space for this course. Thank you, Rochelle. So go to authorschool.com slash Jen Hatmaker and sign up. Registration closes September 11th, guys, so don't miss it. Authorschool.com slash Jen Hatmaker. Now back to our show. I wonder, since we're still kind of talking about um, just sort of in the home and mom space, how have you helped your kids find their voice? Like, how does this manifest in your own home as you sort of train your kids? And, um, and, And even conversely, how have they helped you find yours? Yeah. So, you know, I think all parents are doing that, right? I do a lot of mentoring in, um, my professional world. And one of the first things I do when I meet with someone face to face, I like to ask them, so where are we going to go to lunch? Mm. And they look at me with eyes, like a deer caught in headlights, like, Oh, I don't know. And they give you five options. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Yeah. Where do you want to go? And I realize, you know, in doing that, I've often asked my children, you know, what do you want to do today? Mm. We're going to go out to eat. What would you love to eat tonight? Even Mm. though, you know, it's another chain restaurant that I can't stand. We will go because that is what you're craving, even though. So that's what we're doing. That's great. That's what we're doing with our younger children. And you continue that as your kids get older and you don't make the choices for them. You let them fail. Yeah. (laughs) You let them fail. I remember the first time I told my child, no, Mm -hmm. I am not bringing your homework assignment to you. Yep. Same. Oh, Oh, I know. Armageddon. What? Are you you kidding me? Yes. You don't love me. Yeah. And other mothers being like, what? Really? <laughs> really? Seriously. And teaching them there are yep. consequences to your behavior. And how do you communicate that? That's right. Good. So that's giving them a voice, even in the moment in their failure yep. to own up to that because we're not perfect. We're yeah. not perfect. 
I like the idea of teaching our kids agency and ownership over the voices. I, I have this instinct in me when one of my kids is, in my estimation, overreacting to something or having kind of a, a volatile reaction to something that's gone on. And they're telling me, this is how I feel about it. I have this right. instinct in me to tell them essentially what you're feeling is wrong. You're reading the room wrong. Like your, your emotions attached to this scenario are unfair or they are uh, you're, you're not understanding the context or you shouldn't feel that way. And I've learned, I've learned to separate the things out to say, you know, this is how this situation is going down. Yeah. Uh, however, I understand you don't like it. Like y- I, I get it. This is making you mad. Like this is <laughs> making you feel defensive. This is making you feel like maybe none the world is not fair and <laughs> you get to feel that way. Yeah. I'm not changing my space. Right, I'm not right. changing my position. The right. thing stands, right. but I get your, I get that you feel that way. And, um, I, that's probably hard. Yeah, it is. <laughs> so like giving my kids permission to feel their feelings, whatever they are, even if I think their feelings are dumb. Yes. Um, is, is empowering to kids too, where their parents are not necessarily always not just shutting down their actions, but shutting down their feelings. Right. Um, right. and so this all takes, this takes a very measured parent. Like I have said a million times, and you know this, Kathy, because we are kind of on the back end of largely you with all of your kids, me with half of them on the back end of like the weirdo, uh, middle school, early high school roller coaster. Yes. Yes. And I have said before, it's like, we have a choice because our kids are going to get on that roller coaster and ride it all the way to crazy town. They mm-hmm. are. It's going to mm-hmm. loop and loop and go upside yeah. down and there's going to be screaming and that person is going to kind of lose their mind for the duration of the ride. Yes. And like we have the choice to either buckle in next to them and ride that dumb ride, lose our minds as well, yell as well, um, get a little nauseous, or we can say, I'm going to stand here on the platform. Godspeed on your journey. Godspeed on your upside down loop de loop ride. I'll be here when you get back. Yes. <laughs> so you can feel all your feelings out there as you're yes. looping around. That you're, those are yours. You're entitled to them. You can say what you want to say about them. You can think what you want to think about them. When you land, here I'll be, like yeah. in my normal person's yeah. mind. Yeah. Um, and so I, I like this conversation for our kids too because I feel like, and I'd love to hear your opinion on this. I think we wait way too long to give our kids a real sense of voice. Yeah. Um, we're too busy controlling what they're saying. Oh, absolutely. Um, we, we don't want them to say what they're actually thinking or meaning in front of people because it might reflect bad on us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're micromanaging their little voices constantly. Yes. yes. And so they come out on the other end of that as supposedly young adults and they do not have the tools um, to use their voice with wisdom, um, to own their own convictions. They don't know we've, we've managed that for them too long. Don't you just feel like our generation of parents is just clamping down on our kids' voices? Oh, it's awful. You know, the helicopter parent is real. It's real. And because I've done 20 plus years of parachurch ministry with college students, I've been seeing how that shifted over 20 years and how normal it is now to have parents call professors or the university. Oh my gosh. 
a lot of my friends who work in higher ed are telling me this stuff all the time. This is pervasive. It is not a rare occurrence to have parents essentially move into their kids' dorm rooms and just be their roommates. It's just insane. And golly, are we ever doing them a disservice? I just... I see that for what it is because I'm in that same phase and I'm like, man, like my, I have a 20 year old, so he's about to be a junior in college and he's done some dumb stuff. I mean, like dumb as a sack of diapers, like Brandon and I look at each other and go, that is our kid. Like, I guess we raised him to make that very, very stupid decision. And yet I'm like, Brandon, back out, back out of the room. Like let the chips fall where they may. Um, he's going to have to feel the sting of this. We're not rescuing this. We are not going to come in and be like, oh, that was, you didn't understand the full consequences of that choice, buddy. Not doing it. And so I think that's going to make a stronger adult, even if it makes a very messy young adult. (laughs) And it's, and I have to unattach my identity to it. I cannot just say, oh yeah, I guess I failed him entirely. I guess we're the worst parents that ever lived. And we never said anything meaningful and what we failed. This whole thing was a failure. Um, I, I love this conversation. And I think the principles of the, of your book very deeply apply to how we are raising our kids and the language in our home. Another thing that you talk about that I really like, um, you have some really insightful things to say, um, in the book about imposter syndrome. Um, Mm -hmm. and so for people who don't quite know what that means, I wonder if you can talk about imposter syndrome, how we overcome it. And you give a really great biblical example of someone who struggled with imposter syndrome. Could you just talk about that for a minute? Yeah, so it's a phrase that was coined by um, American psychologists Pauline Clance and Suzanne Imes, and it's a dis- it's a feeling of phoniness in mm-hmm. people who believe that they're not intelligent, capable, or creative despite evidence otherwise. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that pretty much describes, I think, most of us at any given moment and that you kind of live in the fear of being found out, that somehow someone's going to actually discover that you're not as bright as you actually are or the thing that you did. Mm -hmm. Maybe you you did it, but you faked your way through it. I don't know. Um, So it's just it's a lot of anxiety there. And the example that I give is Moses, who just cracks me up um, because he's all about justice. You know, he's trying to figure out who he's going to be about and um, realizes that even though he grew up in Pharaoh's home, that he has this secret identity. (laughs) Um, And and when he is called by God, um, he's all about like, yeah, yeah, totally. But no, I can't. I can't do that. Yeah. I can't. I can't speak. That's my favorite. I can't speak. Right. Um, you know, who am I that I could go deliver the Israelites out of right. Egypt? You know, who am I to talk to Pharaoh? Here's a man who was raised. Totally. In Right in Pharaoh's right. kingdom, he knows the language. He knows yeah. the the unspoken rules. That's right. And here he is um, having a conversation with God. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> having a conversation with God, and in that moment, 
how many of us read that scripture and go, well, if I was speaking to a burning bush, I totally would go. Right. No, we wouldn't. Right. We wouldn't. We totally wouldn't because I didn't. I got a book contract and I yeah. missed deadlines. Why did I miss deadlines? Because mm. I was so caught up in my own imposter syndrome and so worried that mm. that this was someone was going to figure out that I wrote the book, but I faked my way through it. Wow. It's so relatable. I, that's one of the characters and stories that I just relate to so much. And I'm so grateful um, that he's in our Bible, right? That this, that level of absurd insecurity, when, like Mm -hmm. you said, all evidence to the contrary exists, you you have been positioned well. And, mm-hmm. and even then we're like, who me, why me, not me. Um, and so I, I, it's encouraging to know that there is so much, um, life and health and freedom and liberation mm-hmm. on the other side of that very reluctant. Yes. The yes. one that just, yeah. you literally, God literally has to pull it out of you. Like yeah. so reluctant. And yet it, it's freedom and that's, mm-hmm. that's what awaits us. And it's very exciting. And I think people listening who have dug deep enough and they, they are using their voice as well. And they have, um, they have procured the courage necessary, um, to speak up and to speak out and, um, to own their convictions and to own their, um, ambitions in, in this mean world. They, they know that that's true. There's something very powerful in that space, very liberating in that space, incredibly mm-hmm. exciting. And it, it doesn't just set us free. It has the capacity to set other people free. And that's what we're doing here. Like that yes. is the point. Um, and so speaking of that, you're not only a woman, you're a person of color. And so you kind of live at these weird intersections of power, like where yes. privilege has worn a very entrenched you know, space in all of our systems and in our structures. And so, um, I wonder how you find the courage and you do this really, really well, Kathy, um, to speak out in, in the, um, inside the Christian community, for example, inside the Christian publishing community, inside the Christian conference community and in the world. And like, why is this important? Why is it important to share who you are Right. what your experiences and those of many, many, many others have been, um, and sort of securing the power that, that belongs to you. I, I would yeah. just love for you to talk about your experience because you've got a big old, bold, brave voice out there and, <laughs> and it matters. And I think it's moving the needle forward. Can you sort of talk about how you've developed the, the capacity and the courage for that work? I have, um, I have a great, wonderful group of friends who are um, here in my physical space as well as kind of out there in the virtual space who um, who I have found to be kind of co-conspirators mm-hmm. in this work. And I think that that's part of it is that um, you and I, we do not fight every fight. That's right. we, 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 there's enough hours in a day. There, no, there isn't. And and you, you don't want Kathy and Jen fighting every fight that's because right. that's not where our passions and giftings are. And um, and I have had to say to certain people, like, yes, I agree. Those are 
horrible injustices. That's just right now, not the space I'm being called to. And that's hard because um, I think in these crazy times, everything is important and urgent. Like every other day, there's something crazy going yeah. on. Um, but I often have to kind of center myself. And if I can't do it, then I rely on other people to help That's me good. discern and rein me in. I'm not, um, I'm not a lone ranger on this. Yeah. So even though when I throw out a tweet or a blog post, it isn't that I did this on my own. I've actually right. been in communication and in prayer with a lot of people that what looks like an impulsive knee-jerk reaction actually isn't rarely yeah. like the knee jerk reactions are often when I'm like tweeting or posting about like, should I buy a KitchenAid mixer? That's, that's the knee jerk. But when I'm writing about a conference that is yet another all white speaker all white, platform, yeah. I'm writing about that or tweeting about that. Not because I'm, you know, in the second angry, that's but right. it has been raised and, I've been praying about it and that particular conference, whatever comes up, I've been in communication with other people about, Hey, what do you think? Should I, shouldn't I? Um, and then, um, and then also relying on people in the aftermath of that because wow. things right. don't always wrap up nice and pretty. That's they right. rarely do. They rarely do. It's not until much later where things look like, the needle is moving forward and mm. um, making sure that I have a group of people who know me and are mm. monitoring how I'm doing as well as yeah. what's going on on social media and, um, and then being able to um, kind of disconnect and detach um, to be able to, like you said, name the emotions. Yeah. And give myself permission to feel, but not be hijacked by every single emotion that I have. Um, Because I'm a very emotional person who emotes. Mm. (laughs) I cry, you know. And um, so I, I can't, I can't live into every single emotion deeply. I have to be very wise about that. Whereas I have friends who actually need to dig a little deeper and be Mm -hmm. able to identify those emotions and, um, and kind of figure out what's going on, um, in order to speak out and in order to be out there, um, tackling the injustices that they care deeply about so that they know why they're doing and saying what they're doing and saying. Um, and then I think you and I both know this is about the long haul. That's right. So even though we may feel like we are living in the upside down right now, mm. or at least for the last almost two years, yeah. um, that it isn't. That it isn't. Because I've known as a, as a woman of color that things have been really crazy for a long, long time. That's right. And that... Um, that different communities have been um, at risk in different ways since the conception of our country. 
And how that's impacted me and you is different and it comes in different seasons. Um, and, and like you said, I sit in these weird intersections and it's, I've always known how to code switch. I've always known how to, um, uh, try to act white, which sounds horrible. It's true. Um, That's right. But right. But it's real and how to not be the dragon lady, how to temper my emotions, um, how to figure out the appropriate way. And sometimes to say, to heck with the appropriate way. I'm going to say what I need to say at this meeting because I've been asked and here it is and you're not going to like it. And I'm going to cry. And I've learned to say, I'm not crying because I'm, you know, because I'm sad. I'm crying because I'm angry. Yeah. I'm crying because I've said this 20 times over the last year. Um, And, and being a woman of color is a difficult space, but also such a privilege to -hmm. be able to say, yeah, I know, I know, I see what my white sisters are experiencing, Mm -hmm. but I see it very differently with the overlay and that intersection of culture and ethnicity and race. Um, And to, to do that, um, to sit in that space. And it's not always comfortable. It's not always fun. It's, it can be rather exhausting. Um, But then there is, there are moments where um, I realize even now I have to remind myself, I've grown up in white America, white evangelicalism, but I'm not. And there's still spheres that I'm learning about and trying to understand and learn from and speak into. And I like how you said it's uncomfortable because in my experience, I believe, and I'm speaking for kind of white Christian America, mm-hmm. I think discomfort is a enormous deterrent. I think we mm-hmm. hate discomfort. Yeah. We love comfort. Comfort's yes. our favorite thing. Yes. We want to be comfortable. We yes. don't want anybody to make us uncomfortable. We want to just, we don't want to be confronted with anything that disrupts our comfort. And we certainly don't want to be the cause of it. Oh my right. Lord have grace. Yes. And so I think it is worth noting and and highlighting that some of this work is uncomfortable and that does not make it bad. That does right. not make it unimportant. Right. That does not mean we're doing it wrong. It just means these are really important places of tension that somebody has to walk into. And it, it is not going to be a pleasant walk in the park, but it's such, such important work. So I wonder, um, as we kind of start to land the plane here, yeah, what would you say to, to people listening, people in power, people with mm-hmm. privilege, Mm-hmm. Um, how can they start contributing to a healthier dialogue? How can they start building a more inclusive world? And I'm not just talking about people who have a lot of overt wealth and position, like right. this very, you know, top tier type person. But those of us like just living in our neighborhoods, we're working nine to five jobs, take caring of our, we're taking care of our families, our homes, like, um, even there we don't even realize how privileged that existence is, sure. right? How, right. how, how upper crust we are in the world yeah. to have those yeah. opportunities. So I wonder what steps do you see for those of us, which is almost all of us who have a really high 
um, privilege level and position to empower voices that are coming from the margins who are not necessarily the center of the power bullseye, um, the center of the position bullseye. Um, how can those of us who may not even realize um, how privileged we actually are um, recognize our voices too as cha- as voices for change right yes. this minute? Right. I'd say the one of the first things is you need to recognize and start being able to name what privilege you have, right? Where is your power coming from? And right now, you know, and this could change between now and the time this podcast airs, but there's a lot of um, conversation around immigration. And, yeah. um, and I tell people, um, even my husband, he is a birthright citizen, right? My children mm-hmm. are birthright citizens. Yeah. I carry now a copy of my passport. There's no other way to prove my citizenship, right? Mm. There's no other way. And even for my children and my husband, they don't look like white Americans. White mm. Americans don't generally get questioned. We, right. You aren't told to go back to where you That's came right. from in this heated conversation. So be able to name even the things that you've taken for granted. And mm. are there ways in which you can leverage that and that you can make sure other people in your circles understand that that's a privilege. The ability to vote is a privilege. And if you opt out of voting because you have the privilege, okay, fine. But let's make sure our children are registered. Let's make sure our neighbors are registered. Let's make sure we know what's the topic of conversation in our neighborhoods and in our communities when that you know, affordable housing <laughs> proposal comes up. And what are our first reactions? to that, right? It doesn't have to be first on the global scale. So it's recognizing um, the privileges that you may not think are privileges that you've just taken advantage of, that you were born with. And it's the little things like you're not afraid to argue with a manager. You're not afraid Hmm. to ask for a manager to um, question policy, store policy or a charge on your account, right? Little things like that, I think are important. And are there ways in which then you can talk about that in your circles Mm -hmm. uh, with your friends? Um, I think that in some ways, as uh, for you and I, as parents, it's almost easier to rein in our children and their friends than Mm -hmm. it is our own adult friends, Great point. 100% that is true. Right. So at the dinner table, when you're having a little gathering and someone says something and you're like, holy cow. Yep. I thought I knew you. Totally. (laughs) What? Yeah. Will you say something? It's good. Will you risk tension and discomfort in your friendship? Yeah. To make sure that you flush that out and make sure you understand, um, Will something, you know, does something happen at church Mm. or something not happen at church that should have happened at church? Will you say that? And will you risk discomfort with your pastor or your elders, um, with your spouse (laughs) and be able to dig deep? Because I think that that's the thing. I think it is in a lot of ways easier for me to press publish on a blog post Mm. Um, Then it is to raise my eyebrow and say something. Face-to-face. Face-to-face at a dinner table or at a restaurant. That's true. 
but it's so important. And, and I hope what people are listening know is that those, those moments of, of courage, and, and it doesn't mean you have to be this abrasive, very difficult curmudgeon. There is a way to challenge, um, language and, um, uh, offensiveness that is mature yes. and it's measured and it's reasonable. Um, and it, it doesn't, uh, it's not eye for an eye. And, right. um, and, and so there is a way to do it and it matters. I was just, I mentioned, I was talking to my friend yesterday who kind of is a, um, she's just a champion for racial equality in a community mm-hmm. that is not. Mm. And she was telling me yesterday, um, going back to the conversation I referenced earlier, that um, she called out somebody that was in her home. This is two years ago. Mm-hmm. And he was using terrible racial slurs and language. Mm-hmm. And she just wasn't going to have it. And right. she did it in a way that was not hysterical. But she right. said that is literally unacceptable. You yeah. you should never speak that like like that, but you're definitely not going to do it in my home, in front yeah. of my children, in my, in front of my friends and ask right. me to leave. And she was telling me that two years later, two years wow. later, he pulls her over at a, some sort of social gathering, still mm-hmm. trying to explain why he said what he said. So if yeah. you think little moments of telling somebody, I see you and I hear you, this is not okay. And you should check yourself. It matters. Right. It's, it, it matters. It, they don't just walk away and forget it. They don't just think, right. oh, she's crazy. I mean, he's right. still wanted to work it out two years later. Right. And it, so right. these things are good. This is yes. good c- civic work to yes. put into our culture. These, yes. this, this checking of language and behaviors and to say, we surely can be better than this. Like right. this is surely not what we're going to stand for. And, right. and of course, results are not up to us. That's, we're not miracle workers. You right. know, we're not magicians. We don't have the power to change somebody else's human heart or their behavior right. or their perceptions. Um, however, I am of the mind that, uh, that stuff sticks and it, it makes people think long after that conversation. It yes. makes them think twice the next time they're going to say it. And they, they're thinking, wait, maybe this isn't, maybe there's somebody else in the room who doesn't want me to hear me, hear me right. say this. And so we have a powerful tool at our disposal, every one of us, and it is yes. our voice. So let me ask you this. Let me, let me wrap this up with you. Um, First of all, before we get to it, just I want to say thank you for your counsel. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for your courage. I've watched you. I've learned from you. I listen to you. Um, I defer to you and I trust you. And and you have a lot to teach us on this. And so thank you for bringing your work to bear here on this podcast. I just have loved this whole conversation. I have a million other questions, but we don't have a million hours. Um, and so I'm excited about your book. I want everybody to read it. Um, I think it's instructive for us in every realm, in marriage, in parenting, in being a Christian, in being a civilian, in being a community member, in being a good neighbor. I just, we have so much to learn here in all of our lives. And so um, I'm just in advance thanking you for the amount of goodness your work and your book is going to sort of ring out of our community right now. So thank you. So I'm going to ask you this. These are questions that we are wrapping it up with everybody in the book series. So here's the first one. Yes. 
What's the first book that you ever read that you distinctly remember having like a boom impact on you? Yes, it was A Wrinkle in Time by Madeline Langle. Yeah. I read it so many times. I can, I just, I wore my copy out. I had never read anything like that before. Um, How about this? What's one book in your life that you have read like over and over again? I would say it was the same book, A Wrinkle in Time. And then it was, I read it quite a bit as a child and then um, didn't revisit it um, often as a young adult, read it again as an adult, left it aside, tried to introduce it to my children. It didn't stick with any of them, which grieved me to no end. Sure. Um, and then um, have reread it now um, twice, Love it. Uh, once before and once after seeing the movie. <laughs> yep. I just saw the movie last week. Um, uh, I'm the same. I read that book uh, two dozen times. Um, finally, a twist on our favorite Barbara Brown Taylor question, which is, What book is saving your life right now? Oh, that was, uh, that is a, oh, that's a hard one. That's a hard one. Um, uh, I think maybe the most recent one is such a light read. Um, It is, uh, don't laugh. I'm not crazy rich Asians. Oh yeah. yeah. I literally just ordered that book. Everybody loves it. Yeah. Um, I read there's, it's a series of three right now. So I just plowed through all three and reread, um, uh, uh, poor, uh, rich people problems, I think is what it's called. And, um, and I think part of it is everything is really, really important right now. It's very yes. serious out there. And <laughs> I just needed to laugh at the yes. ridiculousness because right. I think people really do live like that to some degree. And then yes. there's something beautiful about like this whole family drama, which I can totally, totally relate to. So. I just actually love that you said that. I, I am with you. You know, you and I both do super meaningful, intense, important work a lot. But sometimes I just want to take my shoes off and read a book yes. that's making me laugh and that is maybe even absurd. I, yeah, I just, it, we've got to have a minute. We just have to have a minute yeah. to catch our breath. And yeah. that is okay. Yeah. Um, Mr. Will you tell everybody um, how they can find you, where to look, all that good stuff? Sure. So uh, they can find me on my abandoned blog <laughs> because I was busy oh, writing the book on kathykong.com. Um, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. And uh, I go by Ms. MS Kathy Kong on Twitter and Instagram. Yeah. Uh, you can find my author page on Facebook. Just look up my name. Uh, and I'm in all of those spaces. I yes. don't really do Pinterest, but I'm there. So I watch Same. other people's pins. Um, but that's where I'm at. Guys, we will have all of this obviously linked on the podcast page at jenhatmaker.com, all of Kathy's socials, her book, all the stuff. So don't worry about it if you cannot grab it this very second. Sister, thanks for being on today. Thank you for your just being who you are. Same. You know, I'm cheering you on in every way. 
and I believe in you. you. And I just am thrilled that you're on today. Have a fabulous day up in Chicago where it is not 108 degrees. I'm so happy for you. (laughs) How nice for you. I'm happy for me too. (laughs) Thank you, Jen. Bye, friend. Bye. That's it for today, you guys. All right, run your little legs over to wherever you get your books and pick up a copy of Raise Your Voice by Kathy. You're going to be really, really glad you did. Talk about a practical, pragmatic resource to put into your hands. And honestly, it applies everywhere, like marriage, parenting, workplace, church. It like, this is just important information right now. So, um, she's so, so, so dear and I love her. You're going to want to follow her on social media too, because she will make you think in all the best ways. Guys, thank you for listening. Thanks for being a part of the book series. It's so fun. I just cannot get enough of it. So we've got more amazing guests on the way. Um, more awesome conversations. And as always, I am so thrilled to be your little happy hostess here. Um, Thank you for being the best listeners ever. I mean, just ever. I'm so blown away by this listening community. It's my favorite, favorite thing. So on behalf of my producer, Laura, and my partner and assistant, Amanda, we love you. We love working hard for you. We love bringing you this week in and week out. So thanks for subscribing to the podcast. Gosh, you guys, if you haven't done that, go do it. Subscribe. It'll just pop up in your phone every single week. You have to do zero work um, to get every new episode right into your ears. Thank you also for reviewing and rating it. That's just so great for podcasts. So anyhow, you guys have a fabulous week and I'll see you next time. Hey everybody. So my good friend, Jessica Honiger, founder of socially conscious fashion brand Noonday Collection was just on our podcast talking about her very first book, Imperfect Courage, and we're celebrating the release of this book. So if you care about making a difference in the world, you're an entrepreneur, you love fashion, or you're a builder and a dreamer, Imperfect Courage is fuel for all of that all of those reasons. So you can order it right now on amazon.com and anywhere books are sold. You'll be so glad you did. That's it for today's show. Hope you enjoyed this chat. Be sure to subscribe to my mom's podcast and give it a thumbs up rating if you like it. From the whole Hatmaker family, I hope you have a great week and see you next time.